Well, let's read again God's inerrant word. This is God speaking to us, not the mere words of men. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, when the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we shall raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Father, thank you for that wonderful word. As we've read in Matthew the definitive interpretation, we, we turn back to Micah and we see here Jesus stands right here at this time, some 700 years before his incarnation, given as the hope of the people, indeed the hope of the world. And may we, may we relish that certainty today that he is indeed our hope, Jesus Christ. The Savior of sinners, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, yesterday, Miss Carol and I attended a recital, a piano recital, of a couple of our young covenant children. It's that time of the year, right? Recitals, musical recitals, dance recitals, ballet, and what have you. It's, uh, it's just that time of the year when people do those sorts of things. Our young adults, our yaks, uh, went out to Harriman, uh, really Kingdom, or Kingston, not Kingdom, Kingston. But whoever put the postal address out there didn't know what they were doing and stuck it in Harriman instead of Kingston. But uh, out to the Anders home, and they had a, a, a wonderful time out there and enjoying food and fellowship together. This coming Saturday night, our youth will do similarly. And uh, uh, I was talking to a friend yesterday. They were in Atlanta for a, a, a work gathering. He, they lives in Birmingham, but they'd driven over there. They're, the company he works for had, had brought them over there for the, their company Christmas party. We just went up to Morgan County Correctional Complex on Wednesday night with 20-something of us, and we enjoyed uh, hosting a banquet there for about 160 inmates, plus the guards and some other administration uh, folks who were there. It's that time of the year. 
I hope that everyone in this building today enjoys celebrating this time of the year. Because we, of all people, have the, the best reason to celebrate all the time, year-round. But especially this time of the year. My friend, Dr. Joey Piper, always likes to say that we Christians, in our daily lives, in our worship, uh, we should make the world jealous of what we have, the way we enjoy Christ way we live for Christ. And so we should this time of the year. And the way we play our recital music and the way we dance to the nutcracker and the way we enjoy a party at the Anders and at the cars this coming Saturday as we tried to at the prison, even in that dark context on Wednesday night. Now, I'm also going to say this. I also realize that this can be a difficult time for people, not just because memories of lost, of lost loved ones, that is, loved ones who have died preceded you in death, and you don't have them, and you, your memories flood, and all of a sudden you're kind of sad that you don't have them. But if they died in Christ, of course, you, they're, they're having more fun than you are, or I, and you're going to, be with them again at the resurrection, and so we can take hope in that. But it's easy, isn't it, for Christians this time of the year to look at the look at the mess the world is in, and look at the way they abuse the name of Christ, and the way that things have been so secularized in the month of December, and with our idealism that we're prone to as Christians surrounding Christ it can be a little off-putting it can be something that all of a sudden you 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 look at all the commercials on TV that are about everything except Christ but why would we expect anything else but we sometimes let that sort of thing get us down don't we and we shouldn't, because that's not our hope. Our hope's not in the world, in the way the world behaves, in the way the world has Christ in or out of Christmas. Our hope is in Christ, period. 365 days in the year. So I hope that you won't let the things of this world drag you down, but rather you'll look at all the good things of Christ in the scripture like we looked at last week in Genesis 18 and in Jonah or in Joshua rather chapter 5 verses 13 and 15 and and again today in Micah one of the many prophetic statements concerning the coming Christ and you look at this and you, it's kind of hard to let the things of this world drag you down because you're looking at this passage written sometime around 700 B.C. 701 is a, a good likely date given the historical details of this book. That puts it at the same time Isaiah was writing his prophetic work. 
And you look at this and you're like, my goodness, no one would have thought Bethlehem. And yet that's exactly where Christ was born. And not because that's where Joseph lived, which is normally where a child would be born, where the father and the mother lived. But in God's providence, God had them out of there at that particular time on something rather of a whim by the Roman government. And so it was in God's time, in the fullness of time, that he was born to fulfill this passage right here. Well, Micah, this is a classic passage of prophecy, and it tells us a good deal. The whole book speaks of of what this, this one that's going to come will do. There's statements of his priesthood in this book. There's statement of his prophetic work in this book. There's statements of his atoning work in this book. And here, the location of his birth is spoken of, along with his kingship, his kingly office. You notice that. He'll come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. That's ultimately fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So we see so much in these books. This is the way Bruce Waltke, one of the one of the good commentators on on Micah and some other of the minor prophets, puts it, like the proceeding oracle, it moves from the present distress to future salvation. More particularly, from the humiliation of Jerusalem's king. In verse 1, the slapping of the cheek. From the humiliation of Jerusalem's king, in verse 1, to Messiah's victory, in verses 2 through 5. That's exactly what it does. Micah 4, 1 through 8. We have the prophecy that the people would be restored The law would go forth from Zion again, we read. The word of the Lord will go forth again from Jerusalem. And now here in chapter 5, we see that prophecy personified. How are they going to be restored? How's the word going to go forth? How's the law going to be restored? Well, it's in this one who's going to be the ruler over, over Israel, the one who's going to be born in Bethlehem of this woman from Judah. All of a sudden you you step back and you're like, my goodness. All this to a people who are in a hopeless situation. Politically, they're in a hopeless situation. And even God has already said, I'm going to exile you. I'm going to send you out of the land. Because of your sin. You've sinned so grievously against me. You're out. And then, as we've seen, as I've preached through the prophets and minor prophets off and on through the years, every time there's these, these great statements of God's judgment, God comes back with, well, he comes back with what Paul would say, but God. And ultimately, 
here in this passage, but God in the fullness of time. Did you notice that as I read verse 3? Therefore, he shall give them up until the time. That's a reference to the fullness of time that Paul references in Galatians. Well, all right. Hopefully, that's enough to take those, those strange deer-in-a-headlamp faces of some of you out there this morning and put a smile and put a little joy and excitement in your heart and help you enjoy year-round, not just now, but year-round, Jesus Christ. Three things we're going to look at. First is this, God's promise for hard times. That's the context. These are hard days. Things aren't going well. I've just alluded to this. They're going to be sent off into exile. The Assyrians, the northern kingdoms, already in exile. And they're riding at the very time when the northern kingdom is exiled. Isaiah, Micah, riding to the southern kingdom. They're still in place, but Jerusalem is under siege. Sennacherib, remember from Isaiah? Sennacherib is, is coming against. Now, it's not going to happen, and God promises in Isaiah that it's not going to take place, that he's going to actually spare Jerusalem by another king and we learn eventually in chapter 45 of Isaiah his name is Cyrus the king of the Persian empire and then the Medo-Persian empire and then the Greco-Medo-Persian empire once he conquered everything we read about him very very almost vaguely put in here in verse verse 6 after the Assyrians come into our land tread in our palaces so this is looking looking not just to the present but to the future and he says they're going to uh, there's going to be shepherds set up princes set up they're going to shepherd the land of Assyria with with a sword and the land of Nimrod, which is a reference to Babylon, at its entrances, and he, now it goes back to a singular, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our, our land and treads within our border. The he that matches this prophecy is Cyrus, who's not a, not a godly man at all, and yet God refers to him as his Messiah for these people at this time. So these are dark days. They've been told they're out. God is going to deal with them. Even in verse 1, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, they will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. No regard for the Hebrew leader. Disregard, in fact. Disrespect. That's the height of disrespect. Striking on the cheek of a, of a military leader, 
as well as a political leader. And so the siege is spoken of, and then we read this. Muster your troops, O daughters of, of troops. And then verse 2, you Bethlehem who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. What kind of troops could a little clan muster? Even if, even if you take this as referring to all of Judah, what kind of, what kind of military could they put together? Well, not much. They never, they never held off any militarily. Only when God went to battle for them. We saw that last week with Joshua, right? Whose side are you on, Joshua asked, this one who was standing there. You on our side or their side? And he said, nope, I came to do it. I came to take over the pre-incarnate Christ. So these are dark days. Striking the, mili- the, 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 the king. And yet we go on to see, but you will provide one that will come forth. And notice, did you, did you notice? You shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel. I don't know about you, but if, but if it's difficult times and God's talking to me, I want him to say, I want to send someone for you. And God says, difficult times, I want to send someone for me to do my will. And he's going to rule over everything for me. You see, folks, right there, what's the ultimate? Soli Deo Gloria, glory of God alone. We don't like that. We don't like that in salvation. We don't like that in any aspect because it's against our baser nature because we're all about me. And God is all about God. And until you get your heart in line with everything being about God, and as long as it's all about you, there's no hope for you, no salvation for you. Only when it's all about God is there hope and salvation. And that's what God says here. Let me read you a passage. Back in John chapter 17. When I was preaching through John, we, we took a, a, a long time to get through this passage and the chapter as a whole. But it's saying here, what Jesus is saying in this prayer is exactly what is promised right here in chapter 5 of Micah. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to the heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh. See the connection? 
to, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom have give, you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. See that? I'm sending one for me. Jesus says, I came and I glorified you in the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So right there in that little verse, that little part of chapter 5, verse 2, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, is fulfilled in the words of Jesus and explained in the words of Jesus in John chapter 17. And again, this is in the midst of their darkness and their hopelessness. God gives them this promise. Notice one other thing here. Is that God tells them to muster your troops. Theologians, in talking about ecclesiology, that's the doctrine of the church, talk an awful lot about the church in its present relationship to God and the church in its present mission. We talk about it as the church militant. Onward Christian soldiers, pressing on. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. You notice that? The gates of hell. The, the gates are supposed to keep you out of a fortress, right? We're supposed to be battering the gates of hell. Beating upon them. As Jude says, snatching souls out from the very, from the very pathway into them. But our military-ness, if you will, our militancy is not one of, of sword. It's not one of guns. It's not one of, of, of power except this. We're going to see this in 1 Thessalonians in just a few weeks, good Lord willing. Paul says, I came to you in word and in power. He explains that to be the spirit, preaching this in the spirit, preaching the word of God in the power of the spirit. Peter, put the sword down. That's not who we are, Jesus said. All right, I'm going to ruffle feathers now. Your politics are not going to save this land. Now, that doesn't let you off the hook, just like it didn't let Bethlehem and Judah off the hook. God still said, muster the troops. He still said, siege is laid against us. Muster your troops, O daughter of troops. We're still supposed to 
be responsible and do all that we're supposed to do as citizens of this land. But that's not our hope. Our hope is in this ruler that comes for him. The one who's going to come for the glory of God. The one who's going to save his people from their sins. The Lord Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's the reason he's referred to as the Prince of Peace. There are a number of you in here that have the same color hair or less or no hair or whatever that I have. And you remember way back, my earliest remembrance of this is, is Lyndon Johnson, but more so with Richard Nixon's administration and particularly with Henry Kissinger who just passed away. The peace accords. And we're still having peace accords. We're still meeting for peace. And people get all hopeful. Ah, oh, we've got another group of people have signed the peace accords. We do it all over the world. We just hear about the high profile situations. Any success yet? No. Why? Because there's not going to be peace on this earth until sin has been completely taken off the earth. And that only comes when Christ comes. The second time and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. And then there'll be no more weeping, no more mourning, no more death, no more anger. Because it's Christ is our hope. Well, quickly, that's the first point. Second point, God's promise extends the proto-evangelium. I've touched on this already a little bit, but for y'all who don't know that, that word, it's one of those words you want to know because it sounds wonderful. It's just one that makes you sound like you know what you're talking about. The Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. That's a reference to Genesis 3.15. Satan has, has come in to the garden. He has tempted, lured. Adam and Eve have sinned. They've fallen. They are now marked by shame and embarrassment, fear of God. And then God brings the great covenantal promise. That passage is marked with all the marks of a covenant of the surrounding nations at that time. The promise is that I'm going to give you one through a woman that's going to crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent will bruise his heel. And from that point, that little gospel hope that gets fleshed out all the way through the scriptures, little by little, each epoch, God gives more information, more revelation, and more of the redemptive story is unveiled and revealed to the people. That woman, we're told, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, will be a virgin that brings this, this, this child in that's going to crush the head of the serpent. And now we know where that virgin's going to have the child. She's going to have the child. She's going to give birth to the child in Bethlehem. Little by little, the gospel is unfolded. More and more is known. 
so that there's none with excuse. We know that he's coming. He's going to be given to the people to save them. And notice, that's all right there. Whose coming is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time. From of old, from ancient days, certainly goes back to the point of the first gospel in Genesis 3.15. But I would submit to you that it goes back before creation. Because our Lord is referred to in Daniel as the ancient of days. And his beginning is without end. And we learn in the New Testament that before the foundations of the earth, we were chosen in him. We were predestined to adoption in Christ Jesus from before the foundation of the world. That's how ancient this one is. That's how ancient this gospel story is. And the prophet's putting it all here in these few little verses. But notice, here's their hope. It's tied up in the gospel. But it's not going to happen right now. And we don't like that, do we? When we're in the middle of hard times, we want the fix now. But verse 3 says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. There's going to be a period where they're given up. That's the exile. That's that period from right now until Christ comes. But ultimately... It's the period from right there until Christ comes the second time. As we've already said, the ultimate fulfillment of all this can't take place until Christ comes and all of sin is taken away. Not just the penalty of sin that was taken away on the cross, not just the power of sin that was taken away in the resurrection, but the presence of sin that will be taken away when Christ comes again. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. The prophecy here of not just the northern kingdom, not just the southern kingdom, but all of the brothers. Jesus prays this prayer in John 17 on down I'm not only praying for those who are now mine, but those from other flocks, those who will come later, who will come through the hearing of the preaching. Chapters 9 through 11 of, of Romans, Paul speaks of this. This time that Israel, unbelief, then the saving of the Gentiles. Chapter 2 of Ephesians. The wall has been taken down. There is no Jew and Gentile anymore. In Christ Jesus, we're one. But when will we finally see that? Well, ultimately, at that end day when Christ returns, 
and he puts everything normal according to his ways, not our ways, not the sectarian tendencies of men, but the word of God will prevail, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, ultimately, this passage, and this is the third point that you see there, ultimately, and it's very simple, this passage is fulfilled redemptive historically. That is, not at that point in history, not even at the point when Christ is, is conceived and born of the virgin 2,000 years ago, but ultimately when Christ comes again. And that doesn't make the hope any less hopeful. It doesn't diminish the hope whatsoever, does it? It's still there. We still have the same hope. It's Jesus Christ, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he's promised to to never leave us, never forsake us, to be with us to the end. Right? So what does it matter if it's today or tomorrow? We live with that hope. And that's where we live in respect to everything. Doesn't matter if it's the grade at school or not a good grade at school or our jobs or no jobs, the problems in the job. Our hope is not in those things. And it doesn't matter if that gets fixed today or tomorrow. And God may choose to do that temporally for you. But our hope is ultimately in Christ. What does Paul say? He refers to Jesus as our blessed hope. That we look forward to. That gets you through a lot, doesn't it? The looking forward. Children. I remember when I was the age of some of you, I know you think I can't remember that long ago, but I can. And there were those times we didn't have a lot of money. And so unlike today, where there's so many ways to, to get it now, my parents didn't have that disadvantage. And so it might be something that I came to realize I needed. My parents knew that I needed in, let's say, May. But we couldn't get it in May. And so I lived all summer long. Not with it, but with the hope of it. And the assurance that my mama and daddy kept their word. And if they said I'd have it as soon as I could, they could get it, I knew it was going to be true. I knew they'd do it. And sometimes it was all the way at the end of the year at Christmas. But I lived with that hope. 
And you know what? I made it. I made it till Christmas. Or I made it till my birthday. Or I made it till whenever. Because of the hope. And there was certainty in the hope. Now listen, if there was certainty in the hope that my mama and daddy gave, there's more certainty with the hope that God gives. Some of you are living with health issues. Whether in this life or the next life, you're, you're going to be fine. Right? And you know that because of the hope that you have in Christ Jesus to make your body whole again on that last great day, the resurrection. That was the hope that these people needed. That's the hope that God gave them. And it was all they needed. And it should be all we want. So here's the question. Is the one who was born in Bethlehem all you want? Because he really is all you need. You call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. At the end of the day, that's all we need, y'all. And that's our hope. That takes care of everything else. Father, thank you for this morning and for your word. We ask that you might bless us with the knowledge of this hope, with the, indeed, the experience, the, the knowledge that brings with it experiential sense of the presence of our Savior and the hope of our Savior, that he's all we need in dark days or in sunny days. And may we never forget to thank him for being all we need. If there's any here, Lord, that do, that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, who do not possess faith in him, we pray that you might give them that this morning so they can leave this place with the rest of us resting in Jesus. Amen.